Amazon's got everything you need for your dorm. From everyday essentials and school supplies, to clothes and decor, to bedding for... Power naps. And regular naps, too. Save on all things college at Amazon. In the heat of the moment, you're not just keeping it calm, you're keeping it cool, too. With an ice-cold cold brew. And not just any cold brew, but one that's slow-steeped and mixed with brown sugar and molasses flavor. With a cold foam infused with brown sugar coolness and a cinnamon sugar sprinkle on top. That's keeping it calm, cool, and cold brewed. With Dunkin's new brown sugar cream cold brew, America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. Terms apply. Hello there, welcome to another episode of This Week in History with me, your host, Dan the Viking. First things first, guys, I would like to put out a sincere apology for the last few weeks and having no episodes for you guys to have. I do apologize for that. For those of you who are on the Facebook page, you will know that I suffered with COVID over the last couple of weeks and have been very, very ill. There's been a lot of coughing and spluttering and running out of breath and really not a good way to uh, to be recording unfortunately so i do apologize for everybody who has you know been very eager to listen to my voice again so uh, hopefully we shall be carrying on and if uh, you may hear a little cough here and there it hasn't completely disappeared so i will do my best to edit those out um, as best as possible so Do bear with me a little bit with this episode, but I don't want to keep you guys waiting too long for another episode. Now, first things first, the last episode that was recorded, I have had a few messages saying there's a bit of feedback in the back of this. Um, This is because I've put up a new system. I hadn't worked out the exact tweaks on the system, so if you do listen to the previous episode, you will hear sort of a little bit of a whiny buzzy noise in the background i did my best to take that out as best as possible um hopefully that has been recovered for this episode we should hear a nice crystal clear uh, sound now because obviously now it is working and we do have the system up and running properly and i do thank my dad for that because if it wasn't for him i'd have been sat here going oh it's going to take me hours to edit this out and so, no that's all sorted now And we are ready for this week's show. Now, I'm sure many of you have noticed it was a pretty easy one this week. Um, And for those of you who are on the Facebook group, I'm pretty sure you're well aware of this one. And that is General Custer. Or what he's more famously known for as Custer's Last Stand, the Battle of Little Bighorn. Now, this episode, we are going to cover a little bit about Custer and his life prior to that because obviously that's what he's most famous for whenever i've heard of custer all i ever hear of is the defeat at little bighorn and there is a lot more to the man than just that he did have quite a quite an ex uh, quite a different life i would say quite a expanded very very well uh, 
very lucky in the army. You know, uh, during the Civil War, he was possibly one of the luckiest men that ever existed. And we'll go into things like that because I think a lot of this does get lost through history because you do tend to think of the Battle of Little Bighorn. You do seem to think of the big defeat. Um, I mean, this was known as America's biggest defeat and something that sort of stayed with American people, American culture for a long time. And they forget about the the great things that Custer actually did prior to that battle. So firstly, we'll start with George Armstrong Custer, born on December the 5th, 1839. You know, the, the very simple things. He was born in a very turmoil time in the United States, very difficult time. They'd only just... You know, they only just got their independence. This is a country that was teetering on the brink of civil war. There were a lot of problems going on around the world. And it was not probably not really a good time to to be born in, in America. You know, the, the 1830s were very, very strange, very difficult time to live. Not a lot of money around. Um, you know, very difficult. And, you know, America not having a standing army and things like that. There was a lot of things going on in the States at this time that caused problems, not just the British. I mean, one of the most famous wars, 1812, was only just finished. Um, the British still occupying the North of America and Ca- or Northern Canada. And, you know, they've got enemies all around them. They've got enemies the further west they push. That You know, there's more and more problems in America that are going on at this time. And he doesn't really have much to be born into. Um, he was born in New Rumley, Ohio. And like we said, he, he's most famous for, well, to be honest, he's most famous for the Battle of Little Bighorn. But he was also part, he was a cavalry commander, an army officer, and he graduated from West Point in 1861. So he was a very experienced officer. Now, he was a bit of a bit of a rebel I say rebel in the sense of a maverick rather than a rebel as in a confederate rebel. Um, Excuse me. This is in the sense that he was was a bit of a naughty kid. You know, he was a bit of a naughty person, a bit of a naughty adult. And he grew up very childish, you know. And we'll go into some of the stories at West Point where you'll, you'll be amazed at some of the things that he actually did. He was a prankster. Now, as much as I love pranksters, in a military academy, or especially one like West Point, where you're going in to become an officer, you're not going in to just be a foot soldier, you're coming in to come out and lead people. He was known for spending more time pranking people than he was actually doing his his job and doing his studies and his work. Um, And he actually graduated bottom of the class he was constantly in trouble constantly getting reprimanded constantly being put on things like weekend guard duty and things like that he was he was just a bit of a you know he just wanted to have fun and in a military setting and in especially in this time custer's antics were probably not looked upon very favorably and definitely frowned upon and this is why he became known as this sort of very disobedient and very naughty soldier. He was court-martialed as well while he was there. 
Um, he was actually court-martialed for, whilst on guard duty, failing to stop a fight. Um, basically standing there and encouraging it and letting it go on. Now, we've all done that. We, I know for a fact I've done that. But when you are put in a position where you are supposed to look after people, especially on guard duty, you're supposed to stop things like this and to just stand there and shout, fight, 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 let's get it on. Um, you can understand why he was frowned upon and court-martialed for that. And, you know, his West Point career is something that stuck with him throughout his whole career. So although he graduated and, you know, he did a lot of things during the Civil War um, that possibly would have made him made him better, made him look better in the, the eyes of the hierarchy in the army, but because of his stains on his record from West Point, he was still very much looked upon as this maverick, as this rebel who was, you know, not to be trusted in a position of real power. So like we said, Custer graduated bottom of his class. He was the worst recruit at West Point, but he still made it and he still graduated. Now, he graduated towards the end of 1861. For those of you who are history buffs, you will know that the Civil War kicked off in April 1861. So this is a man who's just come out and he's looking to make an impact. And the first thing that he decides to join, or the first branch of the army he decides to join, is the Union Cavalry. And this is where he basically makes his name. This is where he is extremely famous, and this is where he stays for his entire career. He is always part of the cavalry for his entire career in the army. He was very daring. He was very ballsy. He was the type of general, or not general, but he was the type of officer who would lead cavalry charges. He would go in headfirst into battle. He was extremely confident in his ability in the cavalry and this was you know this was shown he, he was very very prolific on the battlefield and the first couple of years of the civil war he, he had many victories he was influential in many victories as well um, and in june uh, 1863 he was prom promoted to brigadier general in the cavalry at just 23 years old so that just gives you an, an idea of how how good Custer actually was. Now, although he was, like I said, he was this maverick, he was this, um, you know, this this officer that potentially wouldn't listen very well, but he, at the end of the day, he did his job, and he did his job very, very well, and he was a very successful um, officer in, in the Union Cavalry. Now, for those of you who have slightly worked out, this coincides with the Battle of Gettysburg. And this is where Custer got his real first taste of leadership. And this is where, on the third day of the Battle of Gettysburg, uh, General J.B. Stewart from the Confederate Army was basically using his cavalry as a plan to attack the rear of the Union line. And the one Union officer who stood in his way was Custer. And Custer pulled his cavalry across, and there was a, a big cavalry charge big cavalry fight thousands of horses thousands of men and custer came out victorious now whether this i mean it, it played a certainly a decisive role in that whether it played a huge part in regards to the the outcome of the battle of gettysburg uh, we won't know however had that um 
that rebel cavalry managed to break the rear line of the Union troops, I think it would have been very difficult for them to hold the ridge. Now, because of that, you can almost say that Custer helped win the Battle of Gettysburg. Now, bearing in mind Custer isn't really known for this, it's definitely something to pay attention to. Custer, like I said, I've said it the whole way along, Custer is known for his loss at the Little Big Horn. That's it. That's all we know about it. Well, that's all, especially from an English point of view, unless you've studied it, I don't think this is something most people know. And he was definitely a very, very influential figure prior to that and potentially saved saved the Union War. You know, when we go back to the Gettysburg episode, had the Confederates won the Battle of Gettysburg, they had a clean road to Washington. That changes the entire outcome of the war. And when you think about the fact that Custer's cavalry potentially is played a huge part in, in saving that Union victory, it's very hard to condemn a man for one defeat when potentially he was the reason that the, the Union carried on and, and fought to the America we know today. Towards the end of the Civil War, Custer was promoted to Major General and put in charge of entire cavalry units. Now, this just goes to show how much the Union Army actually believed in him. Um, you know, it's a huge promotion, huge amount of pressure, a lot more men, a lot bigger units to deal with. And what made Custer so famous was his decision to lead from the front. Now, for a British, from a British perspective, it's very common for our officers to lead from the front. In an American setting, it was not very common for their officers to lead from the front. As a general rule, especially on things like cavalry charges, their generals would sit at the back where it was safer and where they could overlook the battlefield and make tactical decisions in regards to that. Whereas when you're in the thick of the fighting, it's very difficult to make those tactical decisions. And to be fair, when you just look back to the two previous episodes that we've done, where I have covered British generals fighting from the front. We've got Vice Admiral Nelson on the victory. He died on the victory. And you've got Major General Wolfe from the Battle of Quebec, who died on the front line. So you can understand why American officers decided to sit back a little bit and actually play the battlefield a little bit more sensibly. However, Custer... Not that type of man. Wanted to go in, wanted to be in the thick of it, and wanted to be in the front line all the time. Custer was lucky. And he, there was a, a term that was used in the Union Army called Custer's luck. And this was basically because somehow he never got hurt. Now, having seen Civil War footage, having seen old battle footage... Um, and, and understanding how these men actually fought at certain battles, for him to lead from the front and constantly lead from the front and to never get injured is quite an impressive feat. And it is definitely very, very lucky. Um, he even had 11 horses shot out from underneath him. So not only, you know, when you think of that, I mean, I know a horse is a bigger target, but 11 11 horses being shot out from underneath you and yet you haven't got a scratch. 
Um, he was definitely a very, very lucky general. And like I said, the, the term Custer's luck was, was brought across the Union Army. One of the main points of the Civil War that I think has been forgotten was the blockade of the retreat from the rebel army by the Union cavalry. And the man who was in charge of blockading that retreat was General Custer. So Custer actually was the man who stopped Robert E. Lee regrouping and retreating back to save their their army. He was also the man who took the white flag off Robert E. Lee and was there at the official surrender. So he was very, very influential in the American Civil War. And it is something that people do forget. You know, I certainly until research and didn't realize how much of an influence Custer actually had on the Civil War. And to actually imagine that he was the man that took the white flag off General Lee to, you know, to, to take the terms of surrender, it's not something that you know very much about. And that is very, very important to remember in history is how influential certain people are and how certain people change the entire course of history as we know it. So after the Civil War, Custer married his wife Libby. They weren't, well, they they were a good match, but uh, Libby's dad, you know, the classic dad, he was a judge. This man's beneath her. He's not good enough for her. But obviously, you know, it didn't affect them. They had a good a good relationship, quite a strong, passionate relationship. Some of the letters, I believe, still exist now. And, you know, they, you know, for, for all intents and purposes, a very, very good marriage. And Custer was a different type of man when, when the war had finished. You know, he was, he was very flamboyant anyway. And he did a very good job of keeping up his appearances. So for an 18, uh, 17th century, 1800s, time in america he was very dapper um he always wore the big sombrero hats uh, always had his hair nicely done perfumed and very golden which is what we know about him uh, he always always had uh, you know the the top fashion the, the really bright buckles and things like that. he was very you knew custer let's put it that way you could see him and you'd go oh that's general custer you knew who he was and uh he was you know promoted after the war again and he was sent out in 1866 to Kansas and i put this in quotation marks to deal with the indian problem or as we now call them the native americans um but at the time he was sent out there to deal with what was going on in the west of america now the american west is a fantastic story it's fantastic how you know, with the Civil War over, how America needed to expand west to get more land for people to live and so on and so forth. And it's it's definitely a part of history that I find very, very interesting. And it is something that we actually teach in this country at um, a second grade level um, or what you would call high school. We call it secondary school. And it's something that we we do teach. You know, we do have a good a good bit of knowledge about the American West and how it evolved from basically just being Indian settlements and uh, native tribe lands to the the West that we know um, and things like that. So it's definitely something we know a little bit about, probably nowhere near as much as what you guys learn about. And I would hope that you guys do learn about it 
because it is a massive part of your history. So towards the late 1860s, 1870s, the local Indian tribes have been pushed further and further away. They've been pushed onto reservations that were set up by the American government. Um, and let's be honest here, like the American government, there, there was many, many times where they would set a reservation land for the local tribes to go to. They would send them to this tribe. Then all of a sudden they found gold there. And then they'd kick them out of that land and say, oh, no, no, we didn't want to give you this land. We wanted to give you, we wanted to give you land a little bit further down that's worthless. So we're going to take this land back now. Even though we've given it to you, we're going to take it back now because it's got gold. So you can understand why increasing tensions were, were there for the Native Americans. And basically towards the, the 1860s, 1870s, the last stronghold that the Indians had were the Great Plains of America. Custer was sent out there to deal with this problem. You know, the Sioux and the Cheyenne Indians, these were the Great Plains Indians. And these were the ones where he they were causing the most, I would say, problems to the American government. But obviously, looking back on it, they weren't causing problems. They were just trying to live their life. But at the time, they were, they were seen as causing problems for the American people. And Custer was sent out there to, you know, commit raids and little battles here and there and do what he could to crush the Indian population or to at least get them onto the reservation so they were out of the way. And this is what the plan was, basically, to get the Indians out of sight, out of mind. Now, in 1873, Custer had a battle, and the battle was against two of probably the most famous Indian warriors of the day, and that was crazy horse and sitting bull now for those of you who are a step ahead of me you will know that those were the two warriors at the battle of little bighorn however this happened before that so custard knew these indians he fought these indians beforehand the reason for this battle in in 1873 was to do with the trains that america had put going out into the west um, and what they what they used to do was on the trains, the government would encourage the trains to stop on their way. And when they stopped, they were told that the passengers could get off and kill the buffalo that were at the side of the train tracks. They were allowed to kill them for sport. Now, obviously, this a lot of people did this. And this is what the Indians relied on for food and for survival and the needless killing of these animals seemed a bit a bit redundant and a bit stupid to the Indian population. And to be honest, me personally as well. Do, do apologize if uh, I offend anybody by this. Killing for sport is not killing. If you're killing and you're going to eat it and you're going to, you know, it's going to feed you and your family, absolutely no issue with that whatsoever. But don't kill for no reason. And And this is why they got so annoyed and, and especially the Native Americans and their passion for um, natural life and beauty and and especially, you know, when things died, they used every part of that buffalo. You know, they made a point of every single thing had a, every single part of the buffalo had a use. And this is something that obviously when you just see these people come into your land, build this massive train 
and then just stop and kill these wildlife for no reason and just leave them on the floor and, and disappear, you can understand why they were starting to get a bit annoyed and why they were starting to fight back. Now, obviously, on this occasion, Custer won and he drove them away. And, you know, that, that was the end of that story. But he didn't realize at that time that the two warriors that he would just faced would be the warriors that basically were the point of his demise. So we'll flash forward a little bit and we'll look at the the battle that everyone is is very well aware of. And this is June the 25th, 1876, when Custer first arrives at the Great Plains in Montana. Now, when he first arrives, he does not realize the size of the Indian village that he is there to relocate. Now, this is the point that we've got to make. He was there to relocate the Indians onto a reservation. He was not there to surprise attack them. He was not there to murder them. He was not there to do anything other than to just escort them where he should have. Obviously, we know that's not what happened. Obviously, when he realized the size of the village, he realized that that wasn't a task that he was going to be able to fulfill and that a battle was probably going to be the outcome. Custer had a strategic plan to surround the Indian encampment and wait for reinforcements to arrive. That was the plan. Because he knew that this wasn't going to, it wasn't going to end without bloodshed. As soon as he saw the size of the camp and he realized that, you know, there were warriors there that would have fought to the bitter end, he knew that there was going to be a fight. This wasn't something that he could just turn up, escort them, and that would be the end of it. So he made this plan to surround the encampment and wait for the reinforcements and move in. For some reason, he went against that idea and decided to spring a surprise attack on the village without waiting for reinforcements. Custer had 600 men. Now, what we know about Custer and the fact that he was, like, a, like I've said, a bit of a maverick, bit of a rebel, wanted the glory, we can almost assume that the reason he decided to spring this attack was because he he thought that he could win. For whatever reason, this is what he thought. We don't understand, we don't know, he's not here to tell us, um, but basically he split his 600 men, 300 were to go and attack from the south, 200 were to, or 150 roughly were to stay with the supplies and 150 were to attack from the north. So the bulk of his forces were to drive them up the Little Bighorn River where Custer and the rest of his men could basically annihilate them. On a principle, it does make sense, but realistically, he was that much outnumbered. There was no way that this, this was certain death, basically, and he couldn't get that through his head. When the South group went in for the attack, they realized they were outnumbered, they were outgunned, and there was nearly 2,000 Indian warriors there ready to fight. And yeah, they, they just retreated, they just ran off. Now Custer's left with half of his force, and you know, it, it, was, it was even more likely to be certain death now than it was beforehand. So 
he's he's in a real real bad position and the, the problem they had as well is at this time he was he was actually outgunned now this is where a lot of things when i when i think of cowboys and indians and things like that when i think of the west of america i always think of the bow and arrow and this being their main weapon now this actually wasn't the case he was actually he was outgunned he, you know the indians had repeating rifles that could fire six to eight shots you know i'm not sure on the time frame but they were they were repeating rifles they weren't single shot muskets the cavalry had single shot muskets so you would only get one shot with your with your musket and then you would also have a 45 caliber revolver which would normally have six shots now you would then have so you essentially had seven shots and a handful and i do mean a handful carried sabers not very many this was not part of the uniform anymore the the cavalry saber was not was not that important mainly it was just officers and generals that would carry these at this point so you're coming up against 2000 men with repeating rifles bows and arrows that can fire many a minute and you've got seven shots now even if every single one of those seven shots hits home you still haven't killed enough people so there was just no way that they could they could do this this was not it physically was not possible for Custer and his seventh cavalry to win this battle. They didn't have the ammo, they didn't have the time, they didn't have the men, and they didn't have the manpower or the weaponry to actually carry this off. So Custer sees the Plains Indians and he attacks from the front. Obviously, at this point, he doesn't realize that the South group has disappeared, run off, and as soon as he charges in head first he realizes how well outnumbered he is and how there is no way they're coming out of this battle all sense of communication breaks down all sense of battle cries everything it literally becomes a free-for-all it's every man for himself and it took less than an hour for the indians to kill every single man on that battlefield there was only one man who escaped who had a note to bring to the South group for reinforcements. Um, and he's he basically the the two men who would have possibly gone to help Custer, uh, Margus Reno and Frederick Benteen, basically refused. They said, no, we're not sending our men in. We're not interested. Not a chance. Bye. Now, that could have been... Um, it, there's two ways of looking at that. You can look at that as they didn't like Custer, they weren't interested in fighting for his glory, or they really they saw how outnumbered they were and they were basically protecting their men. Two ways of looking at it. However, these two men did ignore a direct order from their general. So it's, uh, it's a hard one for that as to whether they should have sent their men in or not. Me personally, I think... I wouldn't have, but then I'm not a general and I'm not an officer. And I also think that I wouldn't have because I wouldn't send my men into certain death. However, in you're in the army, you're in that position, you do what you're told. So it's a very catch-22 as to whether these two men should have listened or not. But 
we'll leave I'll leave that one to you guys. You can make your decision on that one. Should they have sent their men in to a certain death because they were ordered to, or did they do the right thing by not sending their men in and keeping them alive? There's a question for you. So we know now Custer died. He died. He had a bullet in his head and a bullet in his chest. He was on the floor, surrounded by around 40 of his men, on the, you know, dead on the floor. And this is where, he, you know, this is where he died. Now, the graveyard for this still exists. Um, it is one of the, it's a very strange graveyard. I believe it's the only one in the world where every tombstone is actually placed where the soldier fell. So when you look at it, it's a very strange looking graveyard because they're not in uh, parallel lines, which is what you come used to when you look at, at graveyards. These ones seem to be dotted here, there and everywhere. And the reason for that was, like I said, they, they, they buried them where they, where they laid. Um, it was quite a brutal battle. Um, the Indians were well known for mutilating bodies after after death, skinning them and mutilating the insides and things like that. Um, I don't know enough about that to know why that was their ritual, um, but that's what they did. They they did that. Um, I know there were rituals that said they used to cut the top off of the skin off of the head to allow the spirit to be released from the head, from the top of the head. So that I, I understand the logic behind that one. Um, I don't understand the logic in the mutilation of the body. So if anybody does know that, or the reason why they did it, because um, the only reason I can think it was it was pure shock and awe tactics of if you turned up to a battlefield and saw that, you probably wouldn't want to go back into battle with them. And that that to me is the only logical thing I can understand. But again, I'm not I'm not a Native American. If I don't know if I do have any Native Americans that listen, actually. Um, so if I do, someone just just let me know. Drop us a message. Let me know what the reason for the mutilation was. If it was, if it had a significant value or a, a reason, or if it was purely just for shock and awe tactics. Obviously, as you could imagine, back in this time, Custer was still a war hero. He was the hero of the Civil War, and when news got around that he'd died and had been mutilated as well um you know there were there were stories of uh two apparently the two cheyenne women um punctured holes in his eardrums whilst he was obviously dead um so he could listen better um and there was also reports of a stick point sharp being pointed up his uh his manhood let's say um <coughs> so not necessarily the nicest way to to deal with an American general. And this was the outcry from the American people where the government intensified their attacks on the Indian people. They, they intensified what they were doing in retribution for Custer. Um, and yeah, and, and obviously, as we now know, later in, in the... the the uh the 17th century the plains indians uh, surrendered and were basically put onto reservations and so on and so forth so 
we know the story and we know the battle. There are a lot of weird things about Custer that we will never understand. Why did he go into battle? Why didn't he wait? You know, what was what was the reason for that? You know, that is one of the biggest questions, I think, when you look at it from a military point of view. He was outnumbered, outgunned. There was no way he was going to win. I think even if his 600 men at the rear of the line on the south had, had actually driven up and fought, I still think they would have lost. You know, there was no real reason that he could have he could have won that battle. When you're outnumbered two to one and you're outgunned, you know, they just it didn't seem logical to go into battle. And it's one thing we'll we'll never know. You know, we'll never know why Custer did it. Um like I said, he was a bit of a glory hunter. I think that's the only the only logical explanation. The man wanted glory. The man didn't get glory and he died on the battlefield. So you know he will always be remembered for that. He will always be remembered for that battle. And, you know, he should be remembered for much more. He did a lot, a lot of other things as well. Very good uh, soldier, very good general. And, you know, he, did, he, he was influential, extremely influential in the American Civil War. So what do you guys think of General Custer? What do you... What do the Americans think of him? You know, is he is he known as this idiot who went into battle for no reason whatsoever? Um, should he have listened to old Jim Bridger, who told him that you know he shouldn't really treat them the way he's treating them, and maybe if he opened his ears and listened to the Cheyenne Indians and the Sioux Indians, maybe that they could get along. Um, maybe that none of this would have ever happened, but. Um, you know what? What do what do the American people? What do, not just the American people? You know, I know I've got a lot of Canadian listeners as well. Um, a lot of a lot of listeners from Australia as well. What do you guys think of Custer? Do you just think like me? He was a glory hungry man who should have waited for backup before he went in, or you know, do you think there was a logical explanation to what he did? I don't know. There's a lot of things that we'll never know in history. For those of you guys who have been patient with me and have waited for this episode, thank you so much for staying with me. Um, I'm, I am on the mend. I'm sure you can hear there is a little change in my voice <clears throat> and a little, little bits here and there that you'll have noticed where I'm trying to catch my breath. Um, I hope it hasn't affected the quality too much. Um, but like I said, I didn't want to keep you guys waiting another week or whatever until I'm fully recovered. We need to get these episodes out there because there's so many good ones coming up. For those of you who are on our Facebook group, you will have seen the new Patreon episode that will be going out as well. That is Bonnie and Clyde. So for those of you who are interested in that old style gangster, get yourselves over to Patreon. It's $5 a month. And if you sign up, we'll send you out a fridge magnet as well. Now, I know everyone who is on my Patreon has sent me a message. For those of you who want them signed, just let me know. I know two of you do. If anybody else wants them signed, I shall sign them as well. Um, I don't have a an amazing signature, so you'll you'll have to you'll have to bear with that. It's not a, a fantastic one, but it is a I will sign it for you. 
Um, they will be sent out as soon as as soon as I've got the last address. I'm waiting for one more person to send me the address, and then I'll send them all out together. It's just a lot easier that way. Um, for those of you who aren't on our Facebook group, get yourselves on there. It's This Week in History. Just click on the link, join the group. I'll add you to the group, and we shall get another episode out for you as soon as possible. Thank you for listening, guys. And just remember, we all have history. Make yours great. Bye-bye. Stay cool this summer with AC Pro and O'Reilly Auto Parts. Right now, get a $15 O'Reilly Auto Parts gift card after mail-in rebate with the purchase of select AC Pro ready-to-use refrigerant products that include a hose and gauge. Beat the heat before you hit the road with AC Pro at your local O'Reilly Auto Parts store. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Something you probably do know. Progressive can not only offer you a great price when you bundle home and auto, they offer you round-the-clock protection. Something you probably don't know, the average oak tree branch can hold 70 pounds. Something you probably do know, your neighbor is building their kid a treehouse. Something you probably don't know, a falling treehouse would take out your whole fence. Bundle your home and auto with Progressive and get more than a great price. Get round-the-clock protection. Something you know for the things you don't know. Coverage from Progressive Casualty Insurance Company, affiliates, and third-party insurers and subject to policy terms. Bundle discount not available in all states or situations. Finding the right person for the job isn't easy. Just ask someone who hired a drama coach to be an IT guy. Yeah, I'm having trouble logging in. I'm not buying it. Say it again. This time with feeling. I can't log in? Come on, man. I want to feel your struggle. But if you've got an insurance question, you can always count on your local GEICO agent. They can bundle your policies, which could save you hundreds. Now, like your life depends on it. I can't log in. Yes, we'll make an actor out of you yet. For expert help with all your insurance needs, visit geico.com slash local today.